Our gospel reading today is Luke 3, 10 through 14. And the crowds asked him, what then should we do? In reply, he said to them, whoever has two coats must share with anyone who has none, and whoever has food must do likewise. Even tax collectors came to be baptized, and they asked him, teacher, what should we do? He said to them, collect no more than the amount prescribed for you. Soldiers also asked him, and we, what should we do? He said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusations, and be satisfied with your wages. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Those of you who looked at the weekly e-letter that we sent out know that I wrote something in there to kind of get your attention. The best sermon ever, on par with Billy Graham. No pressure. I think every Sunday, every sermon is the best sermon ever because it is an opportunity for us to encounter God's word and listen to what God is saying to us. May that be true for us this day. C.S. Lewis said that the stamp of a saint is that he can waive his own rights and obey the Lord Jesus. So that is what we continue with this week, what C.S. Lewis called waiving your own rights, or what I am calling today the way of self-giving. Last week we looked at the way of Jesus as being the better way in a world that is marked often by conflict and violence and payback. The better way is the way of self-giving. Let's look at that today. But before we begin, a fair warning. If we say that the self-giving, the self-giving is a fundamental characteristic of who God is then the way of self-giving can really mess with your life. It can mess with your way of living, with the way that you view politics, with your relationships with your spouse or with your family and friends. It can mess with the way that you think about church. Fair warning. It could leave you, as C.S. Lewis says, to waive your own rights so that you would obey Jesus. The scripture gives us several illustrations of how this way of self-giving looks. In Genesis, we are given what I have always thought is a beautiful portrayal of humility and self-giving, and sometimes, yes, you can call this self-sacrifice. This is very early on in the story of Abram. In chapter 12, God has reached out to Abram and established a covenant or an agreement with Abram. God said, I want you, Abram, to get up and to move your entire family and take all of your possessions and move to a new place. This is the place that I will give you, God told Abram. I will give it to you and your descendants, even though at that time he had no children. And God says in chapter 12, I will bless you 
so that you will be a blessing to others. And it's from there that we get that great phrase and a great understanding that Jews and Christians have had for centuries, that we are blessed by God so that we can be a blessing to others. So Abraham obeyed. He waived his own rights and obeyed the command of the Lord, and he moved from the pew back there that he has always sat in, and he moved to another pew that was closer in and maybe a little bit more to the center in the sanctuary. And then in chapter 13, just like any time God is moving the people forward, guess what? A conflict arose. It says that Abram and Lot had so many possessions that they could not live together. And as typical with humans, they fought over the land. A conflict arising out of power and ego and control. Who is in charge? But instead of invading each other's tents and breaking out into civil wars like we do nowadays, Abram just showed the better way, the way of self-giving. In a remarkable turn, Abram says this, let's not fight, we're family. Let's divide up the land, and in fact, you choose first. I have no ego about this. I am prepared to lose, and I will be okay with that. So he told his nephew Lot, if you want to go this way, I'll go that way. And if you want to go that way, I'll go this way. So Lot looks to his left and to his right, and he notices how green the pastures were along the River Jordan. He noticed that there was also plenty of water over there, so it didn't look like Texas does in August with the drought. It looked more like the fertile garden, kind of like it looked like the Garden of Eden. So Lot hoping that no one would notice, and certainly it would not be written down for us to be talking about 3,000 years later, he took the better half, and they split up. Lot moved into the choice property with the best schools and the lowest property taxes, and Abram moved to Canaan. And then God said to Abram, look at this land. This is the place where you will live. And your descendants will be as numerous as the grains of sand that cannot be counted. It was God's way of saying that even as you choose the lesser part, I will still be able to bless you. There is nothing that is going to get in my way, God says, with my ability to bless you in your life. So several centuries later, there's another man standing along the same river, the river on the banks of Jordan. This time his name is John, and he is baptizing people. He wants people to be ready because he knows that God's promise of a Messiah is a good promise. He knows that God is faithful, and he's out there preaching and people are compelled by his message. They get excited about the coming of the Messiah, and they want to be ready, so they ask John, what is it that we should do to get ready? 
How do we live our lives, John, so that when the Messiah comes, we will be prepared? Well, John tells them in typical blunt fashion for John. He doesn't mince words, and when it comes to telling about the way of self-giving, he tells us what that looks like. He says, whoever has two coats must share with those who have none. And if you have food, you have to do the same. Share with those who have none. And then the tax collectors got interested too. These were, remember, these were the people who raised taxes on the poor so that the rich wouldn't have to pay so much taxes. And they wanted to know too, what is it that we should do to prepare for the coming of the Lord? Does this way of self-giving apply to us as well? John answers them, collect no more than the amount prescribed for you. And then even the soldiers, the ones who were paid by the Roman government to keep the peace. And remember, the peace back then meant the peace of the Roman government. It meant keeping people quiet, no riots allowed here. The soldiers, too, they came to John wanting to know if the way of self-giving applied to them. John said, do not exhort money from anyone by threats or false accusations, and be satisfied with your wages. So it was becoming clear that the way of Jesus, the better way, the way of self-giving isn't just a private affair, but the kingdom of God affects all aspects of our lives because God is as much as concerned about the sewer and safe water as God is concerned about your soul. And one of the men that John baptized was a name Jesus. And Jesus later came to a point in his life where he showed us all, he showed the world the way of self-giving. Rather than seeing the death of Jesus as a punishment from the Father, The death of Jesus can also be seen as the logical conclusion of the way of self-giving. Jesus died on the cross not because God is an angry, punishing God, but Jesus outstretched his arms for the sake of the world and took on the sin of the world because God is love. And love, true love, is the gift that is meant for other people, and this changes everything. The cross means I give, and I give, and I give for the sake of the world. So Paul wrote about the way of self-giving in the book of Philippians. He says to us, he encourages us, he exhorts us, let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. It's not the mind of violence and payback. It's not the mind of fight or flight. It's not the mind that resents your spouse. It's not the mind that seeks first your own good. No, our minds need to be the same mind that was in Christ Jesus. This is the mind that turns the other cheek. This is the mind that asks and seeks for forgiveness. 
This is the mind that brings out the best in your partner. This is the mind that does unto others first as you would have them done to you. This is the mind that takes risks to love. Mother Teresa said it this way. She said, I have found the paradox that if you love until it hurts, then there is no more hurt, only more love. The world takes and takes and takes, and we are in constant search for the gift that keeps on giving. And our normal human response is to going to be protect, protect, and protect. And left to our own devices, we will be happy to be the center of our own lives. And how is that working for you? If you love your family, your friends, if you love your church and your spouse and your, and your extended family, then you will learn to die. And at every place where you let something die, guess what? God can step into that place where God can get on with the business of resurrection, creating something new. It's really not about having to be right. It's about giving life. Because the story that we share is a good story. The good news is that God is about life. God's story is life-giving and life-affirming. People wonder all the time as Christians, what am I to do? We have our answer. We can do no better than to watch Abraham, who was content to lose. And we can do no better than to watch John the Baptist, who said, I must decrease so that Jesus can increase. And we can do no better than to allow the gift of the Holy Spirit to guide us in the way of self-giving, the gift of failing, the gift of losing, the gift of dying. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Look not to the interests of yourself, but look to the concerns of others. May this be for us this day, now and forever.